Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. What's up, everyone? My name is Christian. If we have not met, I'm one of our online campus pastors at the Life Christian Church alongside my wife, Amanda, and it is so great to be joining all of you today. If you are at the West Orange campus watching on the big screen today, a huge special hello to you. The online campus gets to see me like this every week, so not very special for them. But for you, a little bit of a different experience. I haven't seen you all in so long, so it's so great to be with you today. I hope this different experience is still a good experience for you as I send this message to you from London. All right, I am very excited to be able to teach today as a part of our recent series called Greater Than, as we've been reading through the book of Hebrews over the past couple of months and focusing on this major theme of greater than, where essentially we've talked about how Jesus is greater than everything else. Now, the recipients of the book of Hebrews were experiencing persecution in the form of social persecution and ideological persecution. They were having property stolen from them, all because they held to Christian beliefs and practices. And so they were tempted to go back to their old ways of thought and practice, specifically to revert to pre-Jesus practices, the practices of uh, the Jewish faith before Christ had come as the Jewish Messiah. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen Jesus posed as greater than, and even the culmination of so many Old Testament practices and beliefs and prototypes of Messiah figures. And the author is is telling the audience to not revert back to those old practices that would get them out of persecution, but to continue following Jesus. And last week, Pastor Terry continued this theme of how Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You can go back and watch that if that makes no sense to you. Uh, and he's basically saying that, uh, the author is saying that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament high priest that atoned for the sins of the people in the temple, and that Jesus was the once and for all atoner of sin. Today, though, we're going to take a pause from this theme because this is what the author of Hebrews does. He stops in the middle of his argument to almost have like a a meta conversation with the letter's recipients about the disposition that they need to have in order to even receive the message that he is giving to them. And so our scripture today isn't so much about Jesus being greater than something, but about the capacity to even receive teaching about Jesus. It's as if a teacher is stepping back in the middle of of a class and assessing whether the teaching is going well. And he's kind of saying to the students, you know, if you're going to get what I'm about to say for this lesson that I'm giving to even be worthwhile for you, There's something that we need to stop and address first in the way that you are learning or lack thereof. And I think this is perfect for us today also to take this pause, like happened in the book of Hebrews, and to kind of reorient ourselves in this whole conversation that's happening in the book so that we can also better grasp the important teachings of Christ in the scripture. All right, and this is what the author pauses to say in the course of his argument. I'm just going to read our whole passage for today. It's not going to take that long. Uh, This is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, the author says. And what he's talking about 
saying that there is a lot to say about is Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, like we're just talking about. And then he goes on, this is hard to explain since you have become dull in understanding. It's hard for him to explain what he's just been saying about Jesus being a high priest because they've become dull in their understanding, or other translations say that they've become sluggish or even lazy in their understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements, or other translations say the elementary truths. They need to go back to elementary school, basically, of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And righteousness just meaning being in, in right standing of God, the, the, the revelation of God about being in right standing with him. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. That's who the solid food, the, the, the beyond elementary teaching is for. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection. But let's move forward beyond this elementary teaching, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, these elementary teachings. And then he goes on to say what some of those teachings are. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, a resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Okay, so I don't know how many of you have, have watched the TV show The Office. I'm guessing a fair bit of you. There's this episode in there where it's the, it's the, the roast of Michael Scott, the main character, played by Steve Carell. And the, the, they're doing this whole roast of him, and he tries to respond to them after the roast of these quip, wit, you know, witted jokes and to kind of roast them in return. And it goes terribly. But at the end of the episode, he comes back with all of these quick, you know, like, harsh comments about each of them and he goes boom roasted boom roasted boom roasted boom roasted boom roasted i'm sure a lot of you remember that that's a little bit like what the author of hebrews is doing here he's having this whole conversation with them and he's like you aren't getting this you aren't responding to this and then he comes in with this hard hitting section here comparing them to infants to being elementary and it's like a boom roasted now, the author can appear pretty harsh here, but there's a good reason for it. He's trying to lead them to, as we see, perfection. Now, perfection can be a weird word. We don't particularly like it in our culture right now, but please understand this. Perfection in this context doesn't mean like a moral perfectionism necessarily, um, like we don't make mistakes or something, or, or an image of an inauthentic person kind of putting on a veneer to appear perfect. The original Greek that this was written in has a pretty wide semantic range. It can mean a few different things. And it emphasizes the idea of, of coming to maturity or coming to completion of being the person who God intended you to be. But something that the Hebrew audience is doing is keeping them from this. And I'm sure that it's keeping some of us as well, contemporarily, those of us who are listening and myself from reaching the maturity, the perfection in Christ that we are supposed to attain so we can be who he intends for us to be. And that is this elementary way of thinking that keeps us from knowing God and who he is, his plans for our lives and for the world. Simply put, our lack of knowledge or our even being sluggish or lazy to pursue more knowledge can keep us from the life God dreams for us. So that's kind of the harsh negative side of that. But we see, therefore, conversely, that actively seeking knowledge of God can help us come to maturity 
So that's what we're going to talk about today, which naturally transitions into the fact that I've, you know, been going to the gym lately. I know. I know you're thinking, Christian, you don't need to go to the gym. That's what my wife tells me. And she's laughing behind the camera as I say that. But I was like, you know, people say it's good for you, whatever, fine, leisurely thing. Well, right. So I joined this gym down the street from our apartment or flat, as they say here. And this guy tries to like, you know, look, gym salespeople are, are basically like car salesmen for gym deals. And he's trying to tell me through the culture of the gym and walk me through and talk about all the stuff that they do these events. I wasn't having it. I'm like, all right, look, I'm just joining this gym. What, like, what do I have to do? What's the best deal you can give me? Sign me up. What no one told me though, is that this gym is, it's a cult. It's kind of like CrossFit. It's not CrossFit, but it's kind of like it. You know how you know that someone does CrossFit? They tell you that they do CrossFit. It's a cult. It's its own relational ecosystem. I have nothing against CrossFit, aside from the cultish nature of it. Well, this gym, it's not like CrossFit in the intensity of workout. It's like a cult in that it's a giant catwalk for extremely good-looking, muscular people to walk around and show off how good-looking and muscular they are. Like, they literally bring DJs in, and they, they modeled it off of a club. There's, like, house music blaring all the time, and I'm actually shocked every single time I go. And my issue is that I dress at the gym like Bill Belichick. I wear cut off a literally a cut off sweatshirt with a hoodie on and like the little thing is tied. It's like, I don't, I don't fit in at all. For the first week I was there, I promise you, I did not see a single person who was just like, you know, mildly out of shape and trying to be healthy, i.e. me. And I found myself getting a little self-conscious every once in a while. You know, it's like I, you know, I'm looking at what workout I'm supposed to do next and I'm supposed to go to that workout machine, but I might skip that workout because the guy currently using that workout machine has, you know, has lats that he could fly away with if he wanted to. And you don't want to follow him up on that machine. And so I realized I might have to start getting a little bit more serious about this. And it would be nice to have those ab things people talk about that some of those people have in the gym that I, I've used to have and know about back in a, a day of more athleticism in my life. And so I naturally start researching and you know that's a deep dark hole for me if you know that I get addicted to researching things. And the inevitable truth that none of us wanna hear pops up when it comes to physical fitness. See, the most important part of physical fitness and getting in shape is many would offer your nutrition and your health. The problem is, is that the food in London, contrary to what you might have heard, is pretty, pretty good. And right outside of the gym every single day are all of these incredible international food stalls, and it's irresistible. And what's, what's a guy to do? All of that to say, this little key truth is, applies in much of our lives. Activity alone, going out and just doing something, is driven by what is inside of us. So that when you work out, your external action of like lifting something or doing some sort of motion isn't enough. What's in your body, what's fueling your body, what your body's running off of is what drives the effectiveness of your external activity. All right, so what does this have to do with Hebrews? Aside from the fact that I just wanted to let you guys know I'm working out and getting in sick shape. Just kidding, it's not happening. All right, where are we going? There's this great verse that we just read where the author says, you need milk not solid food, um, and that they're infants who have yet to be weaned, basically, and that uh, really the author's saying that you are not giving yourself proper nutrition to be the kind of people that you need to be to become mature. And because of that, 
their external activity and actions, they're, they're unproductive. In fact, they're dire in their cases. They're, they're moving away from the faith. They're moving away from the teachings, the doctrine that Jesus had given them, that God has revealed to them. And they're putting a ceiling on what sort of transformation that they can experience. And the specific sustenance that they are lacking is this thought life, the mental development that God has destined for them. In our life with God, it's the meaty truth that fuels us to God's purposes and activities. If we don't have the right ideas, if we don't have the right knowledge in our minds, in our heads, then we are unfit to do the work of God. And to keep stringing out this metaphor, a key part of the Christian diet is supposed to be consumption of of Christian doctrine, the ideas about God and his world and our place within it, which will then in turn inform our actions in our, in our, our life, in our emotions. See, if our thinking is thin, then our action is thin. Our lives are thin. This is why we need to be encouraged, to be pushed even, to learn more about God so that, that we can live rightly with him. Now, we know knowledge or heady stuff and intellectualism, it's not everything. The Christian life uh, is, is uh, composed of us becoming emotionally mature beings, beings who have a, a mature will in terms of a, a sense of capacity to guide and direct our action towards good things. So in no way do we want to diminish those other components of the Christian life. But so often, what I have seen is people diminish the role of the intellect in our relationship with God. Right now, I'm studying for my PhD and hoping to receive that. I've gotten so many kind of sideways glances from Christians normally about why I'm spending so much time studying and not needing to do that. And you have so many like lyrics and songs or things that are said, and I'm not trying to, to bash anything, but this is it just it where they'll talk about moving from our head to our heart or getting out of your head and getting into your heart. This sort of stuff has seeped so much into our language where it's de-emphasizing the thought life and emphasizing, let's say, the emotional life. You know, you can talk to a, a, a Christian who's very bright and smart, hardworking. They're competent. They excel in, in their field and they're, they're at the top of their job. Maybe they read a lot of self-help books, which are great. Maybe they read a, you know, a lot of biographies or, or books on business. Um, but when it comes to learning about faith or maybe going to a Bible study, reading a really challenging uh, book on, on the Christian life and thought— it's often met, I have found, with this interest. It's almost like, well, why would I do that? I already know enough about God. Learning you know, more and more and more isn't, isn't essential. That's not the point of this whole thing. Or it's, I don't need that to save me or to be in relationship with God. Christians, especially to be frank, American Christians, are often known as being anti-intellectual. I recently saw an article out of a New York publication that was titled something like The Wasting... Of, of the American Christian intellect. There's actually a famous book that won a, a lot of awards in the early 2000s, written by a Christian author called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, talking about how we've uh, how the, the church in America, we won't get caught up on the word evangelical. There's a lot of connotations that come along with that, but just general, generally describing the movement that has impacted us and American Christianity uh, and, and how we've lost our intellect and kind of the deep thought to engage the world. Interestingly, I uh, am in a, a Greek and Hebrew class right now, and uh, the professor was meeting with a student that I'm friends with, and outside of class time, they were talking about me, 
And the friend was like, oh, you know Christian? And he was like, like yeah, like he, the, the professor German. He's like, yeah, I know Christian. I don't know how to do a German accent. Maybe I shouldn't attempt one, but I'm probably going to. And the professor was talking to my friend and he was like, oh yeah, I have Christian in my class. He's, he's very clever. And my friend was like, yeah, you know, Christian, he's, he's, he's like from America. He's like, you know, like an American Christian. He was like, my, my, my professor was like, no, but he is very clever. He's like, yeah, he's, he's like from America. And I was like, but he is clever. No, he's not America. <laughs> Weird. But the reputation persists. I have found that many times over here. There's this anti-intellectual kind of streak that marks myself and some of the tradition. Now, there's stuff that has happened that has kind of caused some of this anti-learning streak within some strands of Christianity. I won't go into a whole history of this, so don't worry. But I think a big part of the reason, this is kind of one of my personal theories that all, other people do agree with, but is that in the late 19th century, universities that were started as Christian universities ended up being overrun with skeptical thought of Christianity, uh, a skeptical methods of reading scripture you know, and, and understanding the Bible, the reaction of a lot of people of faith was to retreat into a blind belief system or a blind faith where you kind of duck your head into the sand to avoid getting bombarded with objections to your faith. And a lot of other stuff tacked with that created a little bit of an anti-intellectualism movement in the last hundred years, again, specifically in the American context, where you start to have explicit or implicit thoughts within the faith that say things like, you know, I don't need to go on learning. I just believe, or God accepts me as I am. All I need to know is Jesus. Um, and that's all I need to know. Now there's good meet in that and core thoughts in that, but that's not the legacy nor the teaching of, of Christianity. For instance, in Hebrews, the list, the author lists out what he considers to be elementary truths for them that he's like, we shouldn't keep going back over these things. And he talks about the resurrection of the dead. He talks about uh, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He talks about instruction of baptism, laying on of hands, eternal judgment. To be honest, a lot of this stuff is, it's pretty heavy and pretty serious, dense doctrine to work through. This is heavy stuff. It's, it's not that simple, but the author is saying that you need to go beyond the stuff. Why do you keep having to go back and to study and re-understand these ideas? And it's not just that the, again, the author's not just being mean, like, look what I know and being prideful. <clears throat> He's saying, if you could advance in your knowledge it could help you learn so much how incredible Jesus is. That, that it's as if he's saying, I could tell you how Jesus is the new high priest. Remember, that's what he was talking about when he stopped his conversation. I could tell you about how the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies with incense to create a cloud because the priest wasn't good enough to be in the presence of God. But now we have the ultimate high priest in Jesus who is God himself, who enters the holy of holies, and he atones for our sins eternally, once and for all, and he asks the Father to do these things for us. And at the end of time, that holy of holies room lined with beautiful gold is going to be what all of new creation is going to be like. And you're going to be in the presence of God with no cloud of smoke to cover your sinful faces in front of God. 
because his very presence has been opened up to you through the work of the new high priest in Jesus, who's in the order of Melchizedek, and he died for you. Now, is that the kind of truth that you want to go back on when you have this incredible eternal destiny awaiting you and impacting your life right now? Is that what you want to miss on, being in the holies of holies with God himself and look him in the face because of Jesus in the order of the high priest Melchizedek? That's the kind of stuff that I think the author of Hebrews wants to wants to go into and begin to unpack for them, but but there's too much dullness in their thinking. They're, they're too sluggish to wade through some of that thought to get to that place of getting these bigger, deeper truths that we can live off of, that we can embody and take us to new and meaningful action in our lives. See, to enter into a mature relationship with God, we have to be mature. In all facets, again, not just about intellectual stuff. That's just a, a piece of this that, that we're emphasizing. We need emotional maturity, maturity in our actions, and then also this, this mental maturity of understanding. Now, if you're in a relationship with someone, be it a friend or, or a romantic relationship, you're dating someone or family member or a spouse or a child, and they want to tell you about themselves, and you just go, no, no, I've had enough information about you. There's too much information for me to like figure out and wade through. I'm cutting you off in your communication. You can't get to maturity with them. Well, God has so much that he wants to tell each of us about himself, who he is, what he's done in history, what he's going to do in history, and how we play a part in his plan for the world. And when we cut it off and go, well, I don't need to do that stuff. Well, maybe you don't need to in terms of salvation isn't at stake if you understand certain doctrines, but you're cutting off the opportunity to become complete and mature and move towards the perfection that he has for you, each and every one of us. Part of what we're seeing here in the rhetorical strategy of the author of Hebrews is he's using this like harsh rhetoric, obviously, and it's like a, a shame rhetoric kind of thing when he's trying to elicit a response, <clears throat> but not just in this in the shame sense of that we necessarily use it today, but in their cultural context, shame would be experienced, especially if someone was not taking hold of what was available to them in their context. If someone essentially had a great opportunity and they decided to neglect it and to, to retreat away from it and to take something lesser, less good. And here that's the, what the author is trying to say to them. He's going like, what are you doing? Why, what, you were on your path towards the meat and now you're going back to the milk. And he's like, but God wants to offer all of this to you. He wants to nourish you. He's, he's revealing himself to you in the person of Jesus and in other ways. Take hold of it so that you can be nourished by the mind of Christ and to live the life that God has for you. Okay, a few kind of final concluding thoughts that will hopefully help you apply this today and maybe answer some questions. You may be wondering, okay, well, how much do I need to know to experience perfection or completion in the sense that the author's saying? First of all, I'm not saying, the Bible's not saying that you need to get a PhD in theology to be a Christian or a good Christian. No, we believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, turn away from our rebellion against God. We put our trust in him. That's the fundamentals. That, and that's the most important part of it. That's what we need to be in covenant relationship with him. So let's not get that wrong. But as we move beyond that, I think that all of us, I fully include myself in this as someone who is working towards a PhD in theology, is that all of us 
can just take small consistent steps and start just where we are to begin to learning more and more about God and to enter in on this journey. You see, the, the people in Hebrews used to be evidently on this trajectory, but they became inconsistent. They didn't used to be dull in mind or sluggish. It doesn't appear. They became sluggish. They, they lost their drive. And I think that a, a key to learning about God is just the consistency to regularly, practically put yourself in a position to learn more about him, to, to grow in this intimate relationship and intimate knowledge of him. No one comes to a, a point of, of having enough there, uh, knowledge of God. There, there's, there's no pride in, in learning of coming to a place and now I know enough. There's always a more to know of the infinite God. We humbly put ourselves before the infinite God and say, God, help me learn your ways. I submit myself to you. So I encourage you daily or weekly to, to, to put yourself in positions where you're practicing learning of who God is. And a few practical things that we have available at TLCC, go to the resource lounge, pick up a, a, a book of some sort that is going to challenge you. It's not in your wheelhouse. Maybe a book on basic Christian doctrine. You can ask some people in the resource lounge for help. Pick something that up that will challenge or grow your notion of God where you have to like Read the page five times over. <clears throat> That's a pretty cool thing when you're learning about, about God and working through an idea and a concept. And the reality is, is that some of that won't be fun. Like eating healthy isn't fun to get healthy <laughs> or going to the gym and being consistent. That's not fun in many respects. Of course, it ends up being satisfying and it ends up leading towards growth that over time we, we, we see the returns of, but you have to begin to invest slowly and daily. And then over time, you begin to see this mounting joy that can come from the knowledge that grows. It will be difficult. It should be difficult. It will be boring sometimes. It doesn't necessarily have to be boring or should be boring, but it will be in some instances. And it is for me in many instances, but we have this process of growing in knowledge of God. I'd also encourage you to join a life group, have weekly conversations with other believers about God and who he is. I'd also encourage you to, to check out our daily devotional that our pastoral team writes. These are all practical tools we have to help you grow in your life with God and to better learn him. All right, so there's some practical tips, hopefully, to, to help you out and encourage you. And as we uh, close out today, uh, I want to read a prayer that I would always read. I was teaching an undergraduate class in philosophy at a Christian school. And before we would always start the class, I would read this prayer from Thomas Aquinas, um, who is a, a great uh, thinker in church history, one of the greatest church thinkers in, in history. And there's this prayer that he wrote that I think helps to posture us when we're becoming people who are trying to learn about God better. So I'm going to pray this prayer over with us. And if you would, please join me. Come, Holy Spirit, divine creator, true source of light and fountain of wisdom. Pour forth your brilliance upon my dense intellect. Dissipate the darkness which covers me, that of sin and of ignorance. Grant me a penetrating mind to understand, a retentive memory, method and ease in learning, the lucidity to comprehend an abundant grace in expressing myself. Guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to successful completion. This I ask through Jesus Christ, true God and true man, living and reigning with you and the Father forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I pray all of you are encouraged this week. 
in growing and learning in your knowledge of God. Thank you so much for letting me share with you today.